bless them to be a blessing and that um, every family that's touched by that school would experience your grace and your love and your mercy for your glory. God, we uh, turn our hearts now to your word um, in the Gospel of John, and we pray you'd help us to hear your word, to understand it, uh, illumine our minds, bless John Mark as he speaks to us, and I pray that your spirit would be speaking to each of our hearts, God, convicting us of sin, calling us back to yourself, helping us walk in obedience, uh, giving us the light of your glory um, in the face of Jesus Christ. So help us to understand, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was about to, be, was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I, just, as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. I was reminded this morning of how important it is to listen attentively to God's word with hearts and minds that are fully engaged. I was reminded of this because my daily Bible reading this morning had me in Isaiah chapter 51. I want to read to you verse 4. This is not in your bulletin. This is not part of the sermon. This is like the pre-sermon sermon. Isaiah 51 verse 4 says this. Pay attention to me, my people, and listen to me, my nation. For instruction will come from me and my justice for a light to the nations. I will bring it about quickly. The the text is God saying through the prophet Isaiah, I have instruction that I'm going to give to you which will bring light, hope, joy, salvation 
justice, healing to all the nations on earth. Don't you want that? God's word has that power, but here, as so many other places in scripture, the Bible is teaching us that whereas God's word always has redemptive power, our capacity to receive that power is contingent upon how well we listen. The way Jesus said it is this. When he was teaching us to be careful how we listen to God's word, he said, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, which means the heart and expectation I bring to God is going to be proportional to what I'm able to receive from God. And as I was meditating on that reality, it just struck me that God and God's word and God's love are so potent that every time we open the Bible, there is potential for us to be deeply transformed. Which is to say, I'm not really honoring the Lord if I ever open the Bible or come hear the word of God without expecting to be deeply transformed by grace. And at this point in our Sunday gathering every week, it's just so important to remember what we are definitely not doing is gathering to bask in the spiritual insights of John Mark Hart. What a lame thing to do once a week. Or to bask in the spiritual insights of Chauncey or Jared. We're gathered to hear the word of God. And whoever happens to be preaching and teaching is just trying to help us hear the word of God. But all together, we're trying to hear the word. So this text speaks to us as God's people, God's nation. And it says, pay attention, listen to me. So everybody say, pay attention. And with that, I want to invite you just to bow your head one more time. We're reading today, we've already heard and we're going to meditate on, such a precious and beautiful passage of scripture. I want to just take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to help us hear His Word. So I'm going to be quiet while you pray, asking God to help you hear, and then I'm going to say a prayer for us before we dive in. God, in this moment, we acknowledge that you are good and loving and wise and strong and holy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you. We honor you. And would you help us now to pay attention with our minds and with our hearts. Give us grace to understand, to see Jesus, to believe, and to be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 13 verses 1 through 17 asks us to fix our eyes on Jesus who is teaching us what it means that God is love. We're on the fourth week of a sermon series trying to meditate on the doctrine of God's love. And we said in week one, if you want to know what love is according to scripture, don't open a dictionary, don't type into Google what is love, look at Jesus of Nazareth. That is God's revelation of his own love. And that's especially clear in today's text. Look again with me at the second half of verse 1. It says this about Jesus. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, throughout his life on earth, loves his own who are in the world. Here that seems to be... Referring especially to his disciples, those who responded to his word and gathered around him to hear his word and to trust him and to try to follow him and obey him. And that's who we are today. We're gathered as disciples of Jesus to trust him. And so what it says about Jesus loving those disciples applies to us also. 
said he loved them and now he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. That phrase, he loved them to the end, has a double meaning. At one level it means Jesus loved them even to the end of his life on earth. Because the events that we're reading about in this story when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet occur the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. Just a few hours later, the Son of God is going to spread his arms on that cross, bear the weight of all the sins of all the world, bear death and judgment on the cross for us so we can be redeemed and know God. And he's going to do all that because... He loves us. So he's going to love his disciples all the way to the end of his life. But the Greek phrase that's being translated here, he loves them to the end, has another level of meaning, which is probably the greater emphasis here, which is that he loved them to the fullness. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them completely. He loved them perfectly. He loved them uh, with such intensity and such height and such depth That there is no possibility of love being greater than this love. You hear what we're saying here? He loved them to the end. That verse introduces this story. And the story that this story is pointing towards, which is the cross. And as we read verses 2 through 17... What we see is that this text is putting on dramatic display some realities about God's love that I want to sum up like this. God's love is high and God's love is deep. His love is high and it's low. It's high. Higher than whatever you think of as high. It's higher than the Devon Tower. It's higher than Mount Scott. Higher than Mount Everest. Infinitely high. And it's Low, deeper than the Grand Canyon, deeper than the Mariana Trench, infinitely deep. So everybody say, God's love is high, and God's love is deep. Scripture speaks about God this way in a a number of passages. He's the high and holy God who inhabits, inhabits eternity, but he's the God who comes down low. And when it speaks this way, it's using those metaphors to help us grasp something of the majesty of God's love. When we talk about God's height, we're talking about his majesty. We're talking about his strength. We're talking about his wisdom. He knows everything and he understands everything, past, present, and future. We're talking about his sovereign authority and power. He is in absolute control of everything that happens on the planet. We're talking about God's transcendence. The word transcendence just means beyondness. God is beyond all of our thoughts about Him. God is beyond all of our categories. The best thing you can think about God isn't good enough. He's more than anything we could ever say about Him. He's transcendent. And when the Bible speaks about God's lowness, it's talking about God's humility. It's talking about God's gentleness. God's service. Not only is he high and beyond, but he's near. He's imminent. In fact, precisely because he's beyond all limitations, St. Augustine says he's closer to us than we are to ourselves. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. He cares about us more than we care about ourselves, believe it or not. 
To speak about the lowness of God is to speak about His compassion, His tenderness, His kindness. God is high and God is low. God's love is high and God's love is low. My sermon is called The Height and Depth of God's Love. And when we understand those two realities, the height of God's love and the depth of God's love, it just becomes clear. God's love is better than any human love. It's better than anything we've experienced in our relationships with one another. It's better than anything we could imagine or dream up. And when we really get it and live in the truth of His love, there is every reason to be filled with joy and peace and spiritual strength that compels us to live redemptively in the world all the time, every day, in every circumstance. Wouldn't you like to be like that when you grow up as a Christian? The way that you get... The persevering spiritual strength to be a mature person who bears good fruit for the glory of God and to bless other people throughout the years and decades of your life is by learning to know and to trust and to live in the height and depth of God's love. But don't take my word for it. Let me show it to you in the text. First, let's look at the height of God's love. Everybody say, God's love is high. You can see it. By looking again at verse 1, let's look at the first half of the verse now. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Pause. What does that mean? means Jesus knows everything that's about to happen. Judas has a plan. Satan has a plan. But Jesus has a plan. You understand that? In life, I feel like sometimes we're playing checkers, thinking two moves ahead. The devil's playing chess, thinking ten moves ahead. And God's playing some kind of seven-dimensional game that we don't have a name for, thinking a trillion moves ahead. Jesus knows what's about to happen. Jesus is in charge. And when it says he knows that his hour has come to depart out of this world to the Father, that means he knows I'm about to die on the cross for the sins of the world, thus defeating all the schemes of the devil, setting people free from the tyranny of evil, and then I'm going to rise victoriously, appear to my disciples, ascend to the right hand of the Father, and sit on a throne as Lord of the universe. He knows all that. He's thinking about it when he comes to wash the disciples' feet. Skip down again to verse 3. God's love is high. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus knows he came from God. Jesus, the God-man, is the incarnation of the eternal Son of the Father, the eternal Word of the Father. Jesus has always existed as the Son of God, With his father. There was never a time when the father was without his son. From all eternity. All things were made by the son. And through the son. And for the son. He is from the father. And now the eternal son. Has come and taken a human nature unto himself. And now he's about to go back to the father. Which means that he's glorifying humanity in himself. He's taking his human nature to the place of exaltation within the new creation. And he's taking all of us with him. He has come from the Father. He's going back to the Father. He's come from God and he's going back to God. And he knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. Which means these hands of Jesus that are about to get pierced by nails. And they're about to take the dirty feet of the disciples into them. 
these hands of Jesus have already received authority over all things. You know that little song, he's got the whole world in his hands? It's saying that's true of Jesus now, in this moment. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's a powerful symbol. That means he's in control of everything. And if you read what the Bible says about the sovereign authority of God and Christ, he's in control of the political machinations of the world. He's in control of the roll of every dice. He's sovereign over everything. He's got the whole world in his hands. And he knows it. This is talking about infinite power, infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom. Let's get down to verse 8. We're talking about the fact that God's love is high. Everybody say, God's love is high. This is the middle of Peter's argument with Jesus. Peter does that a lot. He argues with Jesus. And this is a moment of great humility, but it's also a moment of great authority when Jesus responds in the second half of verse 8 by saying, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now I'm going to come back to that in just a moment and talk more about it. But right now, let's just say plainly, Jesus is saying... The only way to be cleansed spiritually so that you can have a relationship with God is if I do it. Now the Bible teaches that only God has the authority to forgive sins. And only God has the power to renew our souls. And Jesus is saying, the only way your sins are forgiven and your soul is renewed is if I do it. This is talking about the height of his love. Or skip down to verse 13. When he's instructing the disciples, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I am the teacher because I have all wisdom, Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying, I am the Lord because I have all authority. He's high. He's the Holy One. Look at verse 16, skipping down. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus is very clear with his disciples and with us. I'm the master. And I'm the one who has the authority to send you wherever I want you to go. This text repeatedly emphasizes the fact that Jesus is high, God is high, the love of God is something high, majestic, transcendent, powerful, and wise, and yet the text also shows us the depth, the lowness of God's love in Jesus. Everybody say, God's love is deep. The whole story shows this, but especially verses 4 through 5. I want to read those verses again. As I read these two verses, I'm going to ask you to imagine... I'm going to pray, Holy Spirit, help all of us to imagine. Place yourself in this scene with Jesus and the disciples. Imagine you are one of them as you watch these events unfolding. Verse 4 says, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Can you see that? We were all eating together. The meal has already started. We're all wearing our nice holiday clothes. Then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, Jesus stands up and he strips, wraps a towel around him. He's clothed like the lowest of servants. Basically, he's wearing a loincloth. He dresses himself like a slave. And everybody's looking around like, what is happening right now? And then, verse 5, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
Can you imagine seeing this? Can you imagine what you would be thinking and feeling as he gets closer to you? I encourage you to do that. Spend some time doing it this week. I had had an experience probably about seven years ago in which I was feeling very defeated and discouraged in life. This happens sometimes. And had two kids at the time and was pastoring a young church plant and just felt pretty inadequate about everything. Need to get better at being a husband. Need to get better at being a father. Need to get better at being a pastor and an evangelist and feeling frustrated and say my prayers and go to bed at night, but I'm still having a lot of turmoil in my soul and I can't sleep and so I go in the living room, try to read a little bit and I pray and man, I'm just feeling a lot of junk in my soul. And I just sensed that God was saying, take and read. Open up the scripture. And I opened up randomly to John chapter 13, seven years ago. And I read this story, and maybe it's because I was like half asleep and barely aware of what was happening, or maybe it was the Holy Spirit, or maybe it was both, I'm not really sure. But my imagination was just much more vivid. I felt like I was in this moment. And it was amazing to me to see, to, to hear all these statements about the authority of Jesus Christ. He came from God. He's going back to God. The universe is in his hands. And then he comes to me, and I'm feeling uncomfortable like Peter. I'm probably more like everybody else, afraid to say anything, or maybe wise enough not to say anything. Probably not that. Probably afraid to say anything. But he's coming to me, and in my heart it feels like this isn't right. This isn't right. But in his actions, he's trying to say to me, John Mark, relax. The Bible never said you were my helper. It said I was your helper. When I call you my servant, I'm talking about my authority, but I'm not talking about needing you. As a matter of fact, haven't you read Acts 17? I'm not served by human hands. This relationship is asymmetrical. All the needs on the human side of the equation, all the resources on the divine side of the equation. And you might be saying, I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. Let me be your slave. But I'm here saying, you sit down. I'm going to serve you. You don't get to tell me no because I've got all authority, but I also have all affection and compassion to you. I'm going to serve you today. I'm going to serve you every day because that's who I am. And man, God just started breaking something loose in my heart. That's the depth of his love. The one who holds everything in his hands literally has to get down. No, I mean, you got to get down on your knees to wash people's feet. He's, get, he's bowing basically in front of them. That's physically what's happening. He's using his towel, his loincloth to wash their feet That requires taking their feet in his hands. The one who holds the world in their hands is taking your stinky feet in his hands. And if you're worried, does Jesus care about the details of my life, the things that bother me? Apparently, God cares enough to get his fingers to that dirt between your toes. This is a love that is higher than we could imagine, but it's also a love that is willing to go to any depth of self-giving, of humility, in order to touch you, to get closer to you than you are to yourself. It gets harder to touch my toes as I go. But Jesus is closer to me than I am to myself. To, To get his hands dirty, very literally, in the mess of your life, in a way that is cleansing you. Are you feeling what Jesus is doing right here? There's great height to God's love, infinite height, but there's also... 
great depth. I want to ask you to step back for a second and meditate with me upon how important it is for us that God's love is infinitely high and infinitely low. We need both. We need both. It's saying nothing is too big for God to handle because He's high. But it's also saying there's nothing too small about your life for God to care about. He's interested in all the details. And there's no one too broken, too sinful, too far gone that God's not willing to sink into the depths to find you there. The same applies to your kids. There's nothing that's going to hit them in life that's too big for God to handle. And there's nothing so small in their lives that He doesn't care about it. The same is true for your neighbors and co-workers. same applies to your enemies. God loves them with a love that's infinitely high and infinitely low. I think we can see more clearly what this means if we contrast the height and depth of God's love with all merely human loves. I want you to think about this. Whenever we love each other in action, there are at least three things involved. Let me tell you what they are. When we love each other in action, there's good intentions, and then there's wisdom, and then there's power. Maybe you haven't thought about it that way, but it's true. If you love me, or if I love you, that means I intend good for you. You intend good for me. But it's not enough to just have good intentions. We're really talking about love in action. If I'm going to love Matt Troyano well, I not only need to have good intentions for him, but I need to know what would actually bless him. And if Matt's going to love me well, he's got to know what would actually be good for me. Anybody ever miscalculated you tried to bless somebody and didn't work out so great? Okay. Wisdom, but not only do we need to know what would help this person, that requires wisdom. We need good intentions, we need wisdom, we also need power. We need the ability to do the thing that will help the person, right? Now, human love is always limited in all three of those. So, I may really, really love you, and you may really, really love me, but in our current state of spiritual weakness, the intensity of our love is kind of undulating, isn't it? It's up and it's down. Sometimes we get so focused on ourselves that we forget about all those other people that we care so much about. But even when our intentions are good, sometimes we just don't know what to do. A doctor can go to school for years to gain a lot of wisdom. Thank God for that. They gain a lot of wisdom to know how to accurately diagnose disease and prescribe a treatment plan that will work. But even the wisest doctor sometimes gets it wrong, don't they? They misdiagnose. They prescribe the wrong thing and ends up hurting instead of helping. Parents know sometimes you really, really want to help your kids. But you don't know what to do. And you say something that you think is going to help or you do something that's going to think, you think is going to help and then it backfires. Not only, though, are we limited by the fluctuating intensity of our good intentions and by our limited wisdom, we're also limited by our power. Sometimes we really care about people and we know what they need, we just don't have the capacity to give it. You've had that experience in your life. I mean, I hear about it all the time from mothers and fathers and grandmothers in South Oklahoma City who have come to me saying, for example, my kids desperately need a great education. I know that's what they need. I would be willing to do anything to give it to them. But I lack the resources. I don't know what to do. Will you help? Which is why our school's ministry team is partnering with all those teachers in the schools. That's why we're working with Coolidge Elementary. And that's why we just prayed for St. Paul's Community School. We're trying to help. But the point is, those parents and we as a church only have finite resources. So everybody say, good intentions, wisdom, 
power. A love in action always involves all three of those. But our human love is always limited in all three of those. But what we're trying to say is God's love is infinite and unlimited in all three. God knows exactly what you need. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows you much better than you know yourself. He understands you much better than you understand yourself. He understands better than you do what flourishing would mean for you and how to get there. His wisdom is infinite. God's power, His resources are absolutely unlimited. Our God is in the heavens. He does what He pleases. He is omnipotent. He is almighty. And the intensity of His commitment to our good is infinite and eternal, unwavering. We see this intensity demonstrated in moments like the washing of the disciples' feet and especially the cross. But what those moments are revealing is who God always is. His love is infinitely high and infinitely low. Unlimited in intensity and wisdom and in power. Isn't it good to know a God like that? Consider the implications of this for how we live day to day. To abide in God's love means some things, like the following things. If I abide in God's love, I joyfully acknowledge the unwavering perfection of His love, wisdom, and power, which means I accept every experience that comes to me, either as a good gift from my loving Lord, or as an evil which has already passed through the filter of God's permissive will and which God is able to use for my good. Doesn't mean we call evil good. Evil's evil and irrational. It doesn't make sense. But this is a different way of walking through life. I receive all of God's gifts, God's good gifts, big and small, in an attitude of conscious thanksgiving. Every day I'm walking through the day and 10,000 things come to me which are God saying, I love you, I love you. I'm committed to your flourishing. I'm committed to your life and your ultimate joy with me forever. And all day long I'm saying, thank you. I love you. Thank you. I love you. That's what's happening if I abide in his love. If I abide in his love, that also means I rejoice even in the midst of evil and suffering. Knowing that evil is beyond my capacity to understand. The whole book of Job is there to tell us. There's a lot about the brokenness of this world that we're incapable of understanding. And yet, knowing that God is with me in my moments of deepest suffering. He is comforting me and sustaining me. He cares for me. He's forging me even in the fires of affliction. He has a purpose to work in me and through me even in the darkest hours. And he will bring me out of the darkness of suffering into the light of future glory. Thus, I am filled with unwavering peace, joy, and hope. I have a steadfast capacity to serve other people with great humility. That's what it means to abide in God's love. I just want to be clear about all those first person singular pronouns I was using. I'm saying this is what it would be like if I always abide in God's love. Not that I'm there yet. But that's what I'm aiming towards. That's what we're aiming towards, church. Now if you want to know, okay, how do I do that? Good news, Jesus gave us two practical applications in the text today. If you want to know what to do, here's two things to do. I'll summarize them and then show it to you briefly in the text before we finish. If you want to learn how to rest in that love, how to surrender to that love, how to abide in that love, here's two things you do. One, come to Jesus daily for spiritual cleansing. Come to Jesus daily, we could even say continually, for spiritual cleansing and renewal. Two, 
practice serving others like Jesus serves you. That word practice is key. It means we're getting into action, but it also means uh, when you're practicing something, you're trying it, and you're trying it again, and you're messing it up, but you keep trying. So everybody say practice. Let's talk about the first one first. Come to Jesus for daily spiritual cleansing. This is verse 6 through 11. The impetuosity of Peter often causes problems and gives us helpful learning moments. So thank God for Peter. Look at verses 6 through 11 again. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Here Peter is resisting and probably he's verbalizing what most of the disciples were feeling. It felt to them that something was unfitting about this situation. John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And now Jesus is untying our sandals and washing our feet. Doesn't seem right. So Peter resists. At this point, it's kind of a weak resistance with a question. Lord, do you wash my feet? But verse 7 says, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. An important principle here, if you wanted to learn to abide in God's love, you've got to realize he's often doing things you don't understand now, and you just have to trust him and wait. But Peter is not willing to accept that. So instead of yielding, he increases the intensity of his resistance. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. That's actually a problem. See, Peter understands the height of the glory of Jesus, but he thinks that that is incompatible with the depth of humility and service Jesus is displaying, which means Peter really doesn't understand the kingdom of God yet. Peter is still resisting the truth of the cross, like he was when he said to Jesus, You'll never die for us. You'll never be handed over. And like he will be soon when he tries to pick a fight with the Roman soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's resisting the cross, the truth of the cross, because he doesn't understand. It's not that Jesus comes low despite the fact that he's high. It's the very height of his glory which is revealed in the depths of his humility and love. If we don't get that, we haven't understood the glory of God. So Jesus resists, I'm sorry, Peter resists Jesus, but... Jesus now gets firm with Peter, and he does so in a way that explains something important to us about the spiritual life. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I'm physically washing your feet, Peter, but I'm doing an embodied, dramatic, prophetic action to teach you something about the nature of the kingdom of God. If I don't wash you, you have no part of me. We need spiritual cleansing and renewal to enjoy table fellowship with Jesus. We need Him to wash us. Well now, Peter says, Oh, if that's what this is about, then I'm sinful not just on my feet, Jesus. I'm sinful everywhere. So, he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Verse 9. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Here's what that means. Literally, it was true of the disciples. They already took a bath. They don't need another bath. Right? They already got all washed and cleaned up and ready for this party, this special meal they're celebrating. But then, they walked to the mill in sandals on dirty, dusty roads, so their feet are dirty. That's literally true. But Jesus is teaching a spiritual point. There is an initial cleansing which Jesus gives to his disciples, which makes them clean and accepted and relate in right relationship with God. But in the daily journey of discipleship, they're continually getting their feet dirty and they need another cleansing. Let's talk about what both of those means. 
The initial cleansing is something that 11 of them had experienced. Judas had not. Understand, Jesus loves Judas, is what verse 11 is about. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Jesus served Judas. Jesus made himself available to Judas. Jesus summons Judas to himself. He called him to repentance thousands of times. Yet Judas has lived in such close proximity to the love of God and chooses to reject it and to run away from it. But for the other eleven there, despite all their struggles of faith and all their doubts and all their confusion and insecurity... They've said, okay, Jesus, you're the master. You're the teacher. And because of that, they've been forgiven. If we want to put that in theological terms, they've been justified. They've been accepted into covenant relationship with God. They've been cleansed. They're counted righteous in Christ, and nothing's going to separate them from that love of God. That initial washing, of course, is symbolized by the initial Christian act of obedience, which is baptism. The once and for all, non-repeatable sign by which we show, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ, I'm dying with Christ, I'm rising with Christ, I'm identifying with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's cleansing me and renewing me. If you've trusted in Christ, you're forgiven, you're accepted, and yet, in our daily walk, our feet gets dirty, which is why Jesus told us to pray regularly, Father, forgive us our debts, and Father, lead us not into temptation. Every day, forgive me. Every day, spiritually, renew me. And what does that mean? It means every day we need God's grace. This is not because God is rejecting us. You can think for a second about the relationship between a loving parent and a loving but sometimes disobedient child. That relationship is secure. That parent's not about to disown that child. The parent loves the child and the child loves the parent. But there's sometimes in which the child does what is wrong and in those moments that relationship is hindered. It's not broken, it's secure, it's irrevocable. But the child's repentance and the parent's hug and embrace and forgiveness is restoring the intimacy of fellowship that's there. Likewise, in our Christian life, if we've trusted Jesus, he's saying, you're clean. You've already had a bath. If you're here and you haven't trusted Jesus, trust Jesus. Trust Jesus, that's your bath. Don't get baptized, that's the sign of your faith in Christ. But once you've trusted Jesus, now you're in the family. But it's saying, learn to come to Him daily. Just as He humbled Himself so that you could be cleansed initially, so He's constantly willing to humble Himself, to come near you, to get His hands dirty with the fact that even after you're His, every day you keep getting dirt between those toes. And he's willing to cleanse you and renew you and restore you. He's, it's, it's unlimited how willing he is. But he's saying, you need to learn to come to me day after day. So this is the Christian practice of consciously, daily, regularly coming into the presence of Jesus saying, Lord, anything in me that is displeasing to you, anything that's hindering my fellowship with you, show it to me. Help me to turn from it. Forgive me. Spiritually renew me. I want to be as close to you as possible. And knowing that we're fully accepted in his love. So, one practical thing to do is come to Jesus daily, regularly, for spiritual cleansing. But the other practical thing that we do is practicing serving others like Jesus serves you. Don't have time to say much about this, but let's read 12 through 17 one more time. It says, when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for, you, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, as a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What does this mean? It means Jesus says, I have showed you the height and depth of my love. Trust it, believe it, and now practice it in the way you treat one another. It means this. If there's anybody who has wronged you, forgive them and embrace them daily, repeatedly, like Jesus did for you. You might just pray the Holy Spirit will bring to mind. If there's any relationships that are unreconciled, don't rest until you go work on that reconciliation. Really, that's your first act of obedience. If there's anything left that you can do, do everything that depends on you. It means... Care about the dirty details of the lives of other people, like Jesus cares about the dirty detail of your life. Didn't you feel good when you were thinking about Jesus caring about the dirt between your toes? He cares about all your mess. Care about other people like that. Just practice not getting irritated and annoyed at one another. I mean, in the flesh, we all know we got our own problems, and when other people come at us with their problems, that can get a little irritating, right? But say, don't, don't be like that. Learn to, with patience and care, care about the dirty details of other people's lives like Jesus does for you. It means practice, humility, service, and vulnerability. Caring for other people when it costs. Caring for other people when it involves sacrifice. Listen, friends, we need to do soul care. We need to have healthy rhythms. But loving people is supposed to cost something. It's supposed to cost something. It's supposed to involve sacrifice. Jesus is saying, embrace that vulnerability. Embrace humility. If you find in your heart bitterness towards people for not acknowledging how much you serve them, Jesus is saying, I'm helping you identify a problem and what you think is love. Repent of that. Serve other people with humility and vulnerability like I do for you. What does it mean to imitate Jesus? It means... Trust God to be strong where you are weak and clueless. Which means, I'm going to keep loving you even though my wisdom is limited and my good intentions are wavering and my power and resources are limited because God is strong in my weakness. But it also means stewarding the strength and wisdom God has given you to bless other people. Listen, God made you in His image. You have resources. You have strengths. You have gifts. Don't be ashamed of those. Don't hide them under a bushel. God used all of His infinite resources to save you. To serve you. To love you. Which means if God has given you resources, steward those and use them to bless and serve other people. And remember, finally, that truth of verse 17 This is the truly blessed life. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. When Jesus talks about the blessing of God, he's talking about the joy of a truly flourishing life. Because we've received God's gift of empowerment and vitality. A truly flourishing life is not a life focused on self-actualization, self-protection, self-care, self-expression. A truly flourishing life, Jesus says, is a life that gives itself away to others while constantly receiving from God. Do this and you'll experience the blessing of God. Now as we come to the Lord's table, remember this is a practice that we can do every week which is saying to Jesus once again, spiritually touch me, spiritually renew me, wash my feet. Let's come with faith 
that God's love is high. Everybody say, God's love is high and God's love is low. Let me say a prayer for you. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this truth of scripture that we've been meditating on. Help us to hear it. Help us to think about it throughout this week and throughout our lives. Help us to understand it. Help us to trust it. Help us to rest in your love. Help us to surrender to your love. Help us to come to you regularly for spiritual renewal, trusting that you never turn us away in anger. You receive us with gentleness and kindness. And help us, God, to practice loving one another in this way. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.